Hello and welcome to the RPG Academy podcast. I am Michael and I'm here today with guest co-host and adjunct professor Nathan. And we are going to do faculty meeting 139, Blades in the Dark, an introspective. So this isn't actually a show and tell. It's not a trial. It's not a review. But it's got some elements of that. I was able to recently play in a game of Blades in the Dark that Nathan ran and was actually uh, on the Saverick Twitter, sorry, Saverick Twitch channel, uh, currently on YouTube. I will put links in our show notes so that you can go see that if you're interested. And Nathan's a big fan of Blades in the Dark, and I had never played it before. So we're just going to talk about that game and about the, about the game and his love for it. So without further ado, Nathan, say hello to everybody. Hello, everyone. Uh, yeah, I'm Nathan uh, Bailey, he, him pronouns, and um, have recently been introduced to uh, Blades in the Dark. I've had the book for some time, but I've never actually ran it uh, before quarantine. Um, during the quarantine time, some of my some of my close friends, um, kind of like brothers to me, got together and we said, hey, we want to we play another game uh, besides D&D and besides some of the other stuff we're playing. So I volunteered to run something, and Blades in the Dark is what we chose. So probably have been running it consistently for the last uh, four or five months and really, really enjoyed the change of pace. It, it feels different than a lot of the games. Um, I have played in several different types of systems, and Blades in the Dark just feels like something I always wanted to be doing. Um, I always kind of like um, the, the heist movies and things like that where people are competent, where uh, players, where the GM gets to react to what the players are doing. I first heard of Blades uh, listening to the Magpies podcast. They do an amazing job of teaching both the the um, mechanics and just the storytelling ability of Blades. And so I fell in love with it. Very, very cool. Now, the game was designed by John Harper, correct? Yes. Yep. And again, I... I don't know the answer, and I'm not trying to set you up for success or failure, but do you know anything else he's designed that we might be familiar with? Uh, the, their newest is called Aegon. Uh, it's it's telling Greek tragedies. I've, it's just on Kickstarter a little bit ago, so they've been kind of focused on that. So Blades in the Dark is... Uh, the basic mechanics are based on Forge in the Dark, uh, which is the D6 kind of fate-esque dice system. Uh, there are a bunch of other spinoffs, Mutants and Masterminds, Scum and Villainy, and several more uh, on their actual website that you can download and or purchase. So it, it is it is spun into uh, some other types of systems besides kind of the, the standard uh, fantasy tropes. So it, it felt to me like playing it, there was very like a power by the apocalypse sort of vibe. I know it uses a different mechanic, but just the way the character sheets are playbooks, there are a lot of choices that are built in that you get automatically. Then within the, the playbook, there are like options that you can pick. Um, and even re- realistically, even some of the dice rolling kind of felt BBTA style to me. And I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing. It's just, it's what it felt to me. Would you say they compare to one another? Are they like, you know, cousins or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they're all in the same family. I, th- I think it's definitely closer, much closer to that than the basic five different die dice 
systems, uh, the D20, even the D20 systems. Again, you're rolling D6s. No matter uh, what you roll, it's going to be a number of D6s. You don't roll anything else. Um, so it has the, the successes already built in. It has the playbooks that you choose as a character, and um, the choices that you have are based on that. So it, I think it definitely takes uh, a, a very close homage to, to PBTA type stuff, uh, and probably takes some of the, 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 um, dice mechanics from fate, um, and some other things and, and throws it all into one, one new bundle. Uh, and again, I'm, this is from memory. And so feel free to correct me if I get these wrong. Uh, cause I, I didn't roll a whole lot of dice, which is good. Cause that's again, that's my goal. When I sit down at the table, I'm trying not to roll dice if I don't have to, cause the dice will only get me in trouble. And, uh, but it felt like basically if there was something I was good at, I rolled more D6s. And if it was something I was bad at, I rolled less. If it was something I was not skilled at all, it's like kind of like the default is you roll two of them, but you take the worst one. That's, that's bad. But generally speaking, you just need any die to be a success. So if I roll five of them and four more ones, it doesn't matter as long as that fifth one is a six. Is that right? Right. Yeah. The only time it ever takes anything into consideration on more than one die is a critical. So uh, a one to three is is always a failure. A four to five is a success with a complication or with with uh, some kind of other issue that goes along with it. And a, and a six is an actual success. If you have the ability to roll more than one die and do get more than one six, it's a critical success. So it kind of goes up. Um, but besides that, that that's base mechanics of, of rolling the die. But yes, as you get better at um, as you get better at the attributes, or if you have a power or teammates to help you, uh, it gives you the ability to roll more die, which gives you the ability to roll a better overall score. But, but again, ones are bad. Right. Uh, but as ones long as you have bad. any. As long as you have any success, that that's really the, all that matters. Right. But one of the elements to the way the dice mechanic works is you have like a position that you are coming from. And uh, basically you can be in like an advantageous position or you can be in like a, a bad position. I know there's, there's terms. I'll get to those in a second. And then there's also kind of the outcome that either is possible or you're aiming for. And so even though you have a pretty simple dice mechanic where you roll AD6 or multiple D6s and you need fours or fives or sixes to succeed, the the level of success can also be dependent on your state, status and your outcomes. I know I'm saying that poorly, so please make people understand what I'm trying to say. No, no. So, so again, like you said earlier, I've been playing this for about... Four or five months. I'm by no means an expert at everything, and I'm still learning a lot. Um, I'm actually rereading the book as I play more because a lot of times there'll be things that I missed or I've, I've just not quite been doing correctly. And the the system of mechanics basically, uh, because you have already standardized uh, successes and failures, the GM will set the position and the effect. And basically, what that is, the the position is either controlled, risky, or desperate. And that is looking at what position the characters are in when they're trying to complete this action. If it's something that, that they're in a, they are in a situation that they have all the control of, they're sitting in their own rooms doing something, it's a control position. They, there's no harm. There's no, uh, there's no threat of uh, time or someone breaking down their door. Controlled. In most things, if they're trying to go head-to-head against someone else's decision-making or someone else's position, it would be risky. And then you have times when things have gone poorly and you move down to desperate. 
So that's what the GM is trying to, uh, has their spin on the world and sets the tone for what we're looking at as the player records. So there's that, and then there's the effect. And that is basically the effect that your die roll is going to have on, on the outcome of whatever you're doing. It can be, um, most of the time it's going to be standard, but it can either be greater or lesser effect or zero effect. So if you're trying to jump over to a next building, a standard effect, maybe, yes, you jump over there. Um, something with greater effect means maybe you, you jump over there because you had to jump up uh, from the first floor to the second floor. And then, then lesser effect is when you're going against something that you probably should not be going against. Uh, if you're trying to, say, blow up a mountain with a stick of dynamite, it's not going to have much of an effect. may do a little pop, but it's not actually going to blow up. The, you know, you can't blow up a, a mountain with a single stick of dynamite. So the G, that's where the GM comes in and sets the tone for the world that, that the players are living in. Okay, so that's one of the things that when I, because I, I have the book. I purchased it at Gen Con a couple of years ago. And I've been reading through it off and on, uh, you know, uh, with the goal of maybe running it or playing it someday. But I just never got around to it until I got to play with you. And that was one of the things that felt complicated to me. Now, in play, it seemed pretty seamless. But again, you were making those decisions I didn't have to as a player. And we also defaulted just about every single time to standard and risky standard. Yep. Risky standard. Uh, so, you know, it, it, we didn't have to go through like, and, you know, him and hawing about what we were doing every single time. I imagine that's probably how I would run it too, is it would basically be those two unless there's a reason for it not to be. So in play, it wasn't nearly as complicated as it seemed reading it. But in reading it, it felt like, I was like, basically, it's like a matrix, you know, it's like you have this column and you have this row and then you have your die results and that's going to determine what's going on. And this is a game where the DM GM doesn't roll many dice. In fact, I think you only rolled once at the beginning of the game, but you have a lot of control in what, where you set those and then narrating the results. Yeah, definitely. So the GM uh, in Blaze in the Dark and Forge in the Dark uh, games, to me, and this is just to me, it feels a lot of reactionary, is I'm setting up what what the scene is, and then the players get to choose how they want to react to the scene. So it's not being led by the GM all the time. A lot of times it's being led by the players. Is um, A lot of times I, I simply ask, what do you want to do? And let them talk and go through what they want to do. And then when there's an action that needs to be done, then we roll the dice. So this system, this system basically states that everyone is competent from the start. You don't have to walk, you don't have to roll dice to walk across uh, and talk to someone. You don't have to roll dice in, in every little circumstance. You simply roll dice when there's an action that can have a consequence. And, and as a GM, you want those consequences to happen. But yeah, the, the effect and the, the levels seem very complicated. What I did for the first few times is I explained it to my, my players is, hey, here, I'm going to set it, but let's talk about it real quick and, and make sure this all understand. But I, I kind of default to risky standard, especially in one shots. We don't want to waste time with trying to, him, like you said, him and haw and, and talk back and forth. But in my actual campaign, we may take a little bit more time because we have that time. Sure. Completely understandable. Now, one thing that, you know, this is a game that is designed to emulate heists. Like, basically every session is basically a heist. I mean, I'm sure in campaign plays there might be a heist that takes multiple sessions. But, like, when you're playing a one-shot, you're playing at a convention, you're going in and you're playing a heist. So we didn't have any 
combat, I don't think. I mean, I guess we had one action that was sort of like combat, but I don't think it was handled like I, I think of as combat. And not that we need combat, but I'm curious how combat would have worked if there had been guards in this uh, you know, mansion that we were involved in. How would that game where you as the DM don't roll any dice have worked for trying to take out a guard, for example? Yeah, absolutely. So again, the purpose a lot of the of this is plays in the dark is cut to the action. Don't spend a lot of time planning. Uh, don't you know you can get an outline of what you want to do, but what they what you do not want to do is to waste forty five minutes to an hour planning out every little interaction that can happen. And that's actually helpful for the GM because a lot of times we're making up the story as we go along or trying to to react. So combat is basically what how I use it is when you roll a die to to either attack someone or, or to hit someone or do anything, as as a complication on rolling, say, a four or five, I would attack you back. So I would assign, you know, there's harm in this in this game. Basically, instead of hit points, you set up in three levels of harm, uh, one, two, three. And so if you're rolling something... Uh, on risky standard and you go to attack someone if you succeed maybe you attack them but maybe they get a shot in on you as well so that's where i would assign harm back so it is is definitely a give and take between the players and the gm you obviously as a gm if if you have control of the situation and you're attacking someone you don't want to just turn around and say oh i kill you why because i can well that that's no fun for anybody so it it is it is honestly it's a conversation as you go along and it's the gm setting the tone but if you do something, say, desperate, so as you as you look at something, if you're in a controlled environment, you're going to walk up behind a guard and attack them. They may get an attack back. They may not. Risky, it means you're probably going head-to-head with them, and they're going to get they're going to do some damage on you. A desperate situation may mean that they are standing over top of you with a sword and going to come down on you. And if you don't get out of the way, that sword's coming down on you. So a lot of times, damage both to and from are, are all in what the dice, what the dice roll tells us to do. Which that also feels very powered by the apocalypse to me, and, and just because I'm I'm more familiar with that game, having played it like three times versus my one play of the Blades in the Dark, so that's why I'm comparing them, uh, just because that's my frame of reference. So again, this I circle back around. So this is a game that's about heists. That that's the goal. That's the point. As someone who likes to play D and D, who likes to play heists in D and D, what is it about this game that you think makes it? well-suited. I'm not going to say better suited. I'm just going to say well-suited to running heists as compared to maybe another generic RPG. So for me, again, it is it's set up to have an action time. That score time is we've done all the planning beforehand. We're going to assume everyone's competent and it assumes that you as a character know what you're doing. Whether you as a player know what you're doing, you as a character know what you're doing. And so it, it gives you the liberty to do things uh, where you assist other people, where you set up teamworks either during or while they're trying to do something else that, that you can basically call upon um, as if you'd already planned everything out in every situation. There is a really a, a powerful mechanic that I now use in other types of games um, called the flashback. And that's basically any time a player wants to, they can ask for a flashback 
and it basically would be like in a TV show, it would show the character coming back and doing and, and getting up a piece of equipment or setting up something that they want to happen that in the scene they could not get to happen. Um, and then the GM would assign stress based on that. So again, we, we talked about harm earlier. There's two different types of kind of hurtful things that happen. There is harm, which is physical or mental trauma to your body. And then there's stress, which is just the stress of having to do everything that you're doing, whether it's um, outthinking your opponent or trying to help a friend with an assist or trying to do a flashback to think of everything ahead of time. So you're tracking both physical harm and, and stress to your body or stress to your mind, excuse me. So the, the flashback mechanic helps um, having the ability to, to jump back in and, and basically ascertain that, yes, we already knew this was going to go on. Here's what's happening. And it helps the GM. I think it helps flow a little better. Um, the also the rules being taught as they are, that the ability to roll dice is based upon your ability for the attribute. You can use those attributes however you and the GM decide that you can. So there's no hard and fast rule on when you should use this versus this. There are suggestions, of course, but if you want to come about something with the utter violence, you roll the rec roll. If The rec roll. If you want to come about something sneakily, you might roll finesse or prowl or something like that. So you can come about things different in different ways, and the GM has to has to react to not only the score you roll or the die roll, but the ability, the attribute that you're using to roll it, because it helps us understand what's going on. All right. So I, I do think again I've lamented that in in my younger days running games, particularly heist games, very often what would happen is we would spend maybe an hour or two in in real time looking at a situation like a casino heist for example even though it's D fantasy world there's it's a fantasy casino and me as the dm would try to you know i don't work at a casino i've never worked at a casino but i try to put in what i think are reasonable precautions you know they're they they do not want to get robbed so they're going to have guards they're going to have a safe they're going to have a way to transport money and chips and you know all that kind of good stuff so i'm trying to make everything make sense the player's pour over this map that I've drawn and, and, and all this information I give them and they come up with what they think is a foolproof plan on how they're going to bypass all of these fail saves. And then five minutes into the adventure, one of them's going to fail a roll and the entire casino staff is going to be alerted and it's going to turn into a brawl. And that's not fun. It, it can be fun. You know, part of that can be, there is, there is fun in the planning and there's fun in dealing with the unexpected. But for the most part, it didn't work very well uh, without a lot of finagling, a lot of hand-waving, a lot of just alternate rules that you would throw in. And I agree. I think the, the, the gist I got from the game is we are not even professionals, but we are damn good at doing this. And so that's what the flashback mechanic provides is when something that would have or could have just destroyed our plans, we knew it was going to happen. So, for example, let's say that myself as the GM, I I determined you don't know this, but the day you decide to rob the casino, that it's also going to be like a world-famous poker game televised, you know, uh, uh, to, be, to use an equivalent term. So now there's cameras there. There's a lot, you know, there's 20 times more people than you expected. There's also some personalities there. But instead of this being a complication, like how do we deal with this? A player can go, okay, great, flashback. I'm one of the players. 
This was all part of the plan. I'm, that's, we're not, this isn't a complication. This is an opportunity. And I really like the way the game not only lets you do that, it's built to do that. And it makes you feel like you're a competent heist person. Like D&D, you might be successful at, at doing a heist, but you're not, unless you're all rogues or bards, you're not really built for that. But this is a game. Even your fightery types, your, you know, uh, whisper spidery types are still good at doing heist. And I think that's a fun game. I do worry about campaign play. So do you want to talk a little bit about your home games? Is this a game that can sustain a long-term play or is it really like a four or five session and out situation? So what I, I think, yes, absolutely. Um, I think what we've decided to do is to almost set it in seasons. And what I've seen done with other people, not just podcasts, but I've seen people set up in seasons. So you almost come in with like, we're going to do 10 or 15 or whatever the number is, 10, 12, whatever it is, scores through this season. Everyone chooses kind of how your character is going to go, what you want to accomplish during this time. And then the GM should be putting those things in as the scores. Because scores can not only be stealing, they can be all kinds of different things. Anything that you could possibly do within the city, whether it's uh, assassinations or or, or um, dealing with arcane matters, uh, with spirits and things like that. And so it can be any number of things, both for coin or for personal gain. So what we've done is set up a season where we have an arc and we kind of close that arc toward the end and then we we let a little time go in game and out of game and then we jump back into it because I think if you play the same thing if you hit every week every score you know a score a week every week I do think that it would get it would get tedious and you probably would start to you would probably start to as the GM start to pick up bad habits and start to use the same thing over and over again and I don't think that's good for anyone so yes it does cut out uh, it, it's like, I mean, it would be comparison to having the normal fantasy two or three year campaign, but just condensed. So you don't have sessions where basically nothing happens. You have, there is something happening either during downtime or during, during regular play. So we, we haven't talked about this yet, but this, there's a score section and then there's a downtime section. Uh, we can go into that here in a little bit. So I should, let's just do it right now, because I was going to sort of change topics. So let's just go ahead and cover that, uh, which is another thing I've seen in uh, Forge-type games or in PBTA-style games where there's mechanical things that you do in between sessions that, that show growth or change of relationship, that kind of thing. Yep, absolutely. So in, in Blades in the Dark, it's called downtime. And there are prescribed things. This is where you gained your experience. This is where, as a crew... And as a person, uh, this is where you also would try to, to basically come up with the comp- whatever complications that happen during the score itself. This is where you try to deal with those things. You reduce the heat that's on you. You reduce your stress. You work on a project. You learn something new. You gather information about something else. And what we've done is we've also, we do all the mechanics. And then we have a time where we try to set up things for whatever the next score is going to be. So we talk about what's happening, what the characters may want to do, and then we try to go through the, the role-playing of, okay, so what is it that you want to do? And, and kind of talk that through. So basically, you have when we start the next score, you're starting with that engagement role. You're starting on the scene, ready to jump into action. But it, it helps to have some, some connective tissue to the actual world itself, because the world is living. Uh, the things that are going on, there's different gangs, there's people, all kinds of people doing all kinds of different things. And so you can almost have those 
things continue on in the background as your players are doing scores. Uh, but you need some time to where you can make, sh- make, sh- make those connections. And that's kind of what the downtime is, at least for us. Okay. Uh, so you've, you've been playing the game for a few months. You've, you've ran several sessions. What is your favorite part of the game? So not like a moment that like a player role played, but like the mechanics or the setting. What is your favorite part? So I enjoy the setting. Absolutely. Again, we're talking about a a haunted city um, in in perpetual darkness, wreathed in the bathed in the light of electroplasmic lightning surrounding the city. Um, It's a really neat setting. But for me as a GM, I had only been GM in D&D and games like that before. And it's a breath of fresh air to to come up just probably spend an hour uh, before a game judging what I think the players are going to do, what we've already agreed on that they were going to do, come up with things that are interesting, come up with complications that can happen, and then the reactiveness. I've always kind of thought of myself as a reactive GM. I don't like to plan ahead. Uh, I like to plan things, the cool things for them to do, and I think that the rule of cool and and the rule of story is, is for me, the most fun. And this creates a story no matter what. Uh, no matter if you succeed or, or, you know, other success or other failure, there is a heck of a story that you build each time. So I will only do the campaigns. I've also, I've also done six or eight one-shots and would love to continue that just because I continue to learn outside of my group what how I can do things better, how I can teach new players and how we can get new people to playing the game and just learn about the, the actual, the setting itself. So for me, it's as a GM, I feel like I'm playing it. As we're playing, I'm playing because I'm reacting to what the players are doing. It doesn't feel like I've already set up everything ahead of time, and you all just kind of go through the motions of of rolling the dice and hoping that you hoping that you succeed. It's not like that. All right. And then, what is your least favorite part, or what has been the bumpiest, uh, the most you know, you you've had to massage, or just uh, issues you've dealt with? So I think for the long time it was probably the it was the effect setting the standard and the effect um, the setting those position and effect just understanding what that is and and not defaulting to risky standard whereas we default a lot to risky standard in one shots um, it should feel different when you're trying to do something desperate so it's setting the tone a little bit I feel like in in Blades in the Dark you as a GM are responsible for absolutely setting the tone not only at the start. But while you're playing the game in the positions and the things that, that are going on is that you can't check out. You have, you're actively engaged and I, and I love that, but it is, it takes a lot of mental energy to, to keep that going. Um, so it's just kind of making sure that, that you're there for that, that, that you are staying active and staying involved. All right. Uh, so I do want to talk a few minutes about the setting. You you kind of covered it briefly already, but the, the game is set in its own world called Duskval which is a city, again, it's in perpetual night. It's surrounded by electrical storms that are powered by ghost leviathans. Yeah, there demon blood, basically. Demon blood. There's active spirits, ghosts, or a thing that, that is known and happened. There's vampires. Um, I hate it. It's it's the biggest obstacle I got when I when I got the book. I started reading it, and it's, that's like the, one of the first things it talks about the city I have zero desire to play the game in that setting. I want to play a heist game in San Francisco, in New York, in yeah. Chicago. I, there's, I, if I ran this game, I absolutely would not set it in Duskfall. And I, again, it's an opinion. I'm not saying it's bad, 
but there's absolutely zero part of that setting that appeals to me in any way. I think it feels like it's just an excuse because this always comes up in heist shows or heist movies. Why don't they just leave? You know, if heat, people being close to what you're doing is a problem, everyone just leaves for a year. So you put them in a city where you can't leave. It makes sense mechanically, but narratively not interested at all in Duskfall. So you mentioned you liked it. So I don't, and this is an argument, but I'm interested to hear your take on why you like it. Cause for me, it's very off-putting. Yes. So again, it's not, um, it's not that there's just Duskfall. So Duskfall is the main city and what all the maps are and everything like that. There's a group of probably 20 islands that basically the world consists of that far out, that are that are far different from Duskfall. Uh, Duskfall is just where they happen to be setting everything up. So that's basically where you get the maps, and I totally understand, yeah, wouldn't be what I want to do. But at the same time, there are other places that you can kind of jump into. Uh, it just felt different for me. Uh, the the I like the steampunk aspect. Again, we're talking about um, late 1800s, early 1900s uh, cities as they go along. So it gives a little different spin to it. Would I want to play in this for years and years? No, because again, like I would get bored. Uh, but what we're also doing is we're going outside of Duskwall into other places and making up things as we go along to other cities. So another city can be just like whatever we wanted it to be. Um, you know, it, they, they could have set up any number of different uh, mechanical effects to basically become like another city. So it, it was it was neat to me. Uh, again, we're we're talking about a city filled on the coast, a city filled with water. So it's kind of like Venice that the, the, there's waterways throughout the entire thing, and the, the spirits that that are are stuck uh, there within Dustwall itself. I found it engaging. Um, I enjoyed it, but I don't know that that I, I wish that there were other options as well. So you can go. To, experience the life in some of these other options. And there probably is. You, you know, this game has been out long enough that people have, have made up some different things. Oh, uh, sure. There's all kinds of homebrew and, and stuff like that. So it's definitely there. But I also think if you just didn't like the setting, their mechanics are great to set up anywhere that you want to go. Yeah, I mean, you could very easily set this in a D&D. Like you could play this from Forgotten Realms or you could play in the real world. There, there's be some reflavoring that you would need to do, but it's not you know, insurmountable task to do that. You could just say these playbooks don't make sense if we're playing this modern day or they have to have a tinge of, uh, you know, like you could have one person who is, does commune with spirits and like, like through seances, but it's a very rare thing that maybe not everyone even believes is true. It's not just like, Hey, there's ghosts everywhere. Type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. No no doubt. Could be fun. Uh, so yeah, so I, just, I wasn't a fan of that. All right, so I want to transition a little bit into the game that we played. Yeah. Uh, so and again, there will be links in our show notes to the YouTube version, so you can go watch this. It was like a two-hour game. Tops is pretty short, in and out, um, and it gives a chance. You'll see Nathan running the game. I get I get to play, which is always fun for me. And maybe some of these concepts that we're talking about, if maybe things aren't sinking in like they didn't for me when I read them. Watching it and seeing it and, you know, hearing it in play might help everything makes make more sense. Uh, but we, and I, I'm going to assume that this is something you would kind of do often, but we talked about as players what kind of heist we wanted to do. So, so you op- we had like a session zero. We went over safety and, um, you know, all the rules of the table and all that kind of good stuff, which is, again, a great habit to be in. But you also said, what kind of heist do you want to play uh and you gave us the choice to start with so is that something you just would always do in this case does the game encourage you to do that 
Yeah, so the, the game encourages you to, that the players get to pick, the GM poses the problem, and the, and the players get to pick how they're going to solve that problem. Um, I wanted to go and do a heist, it's something we kind of talked about. Now, what the type of heist we did was totally different than what I had planned, but we'll get into that later. Yeah. So basically, the, the GM, uh, when you start that score, the players each pick the, num- the amount of equipment they're going to have, which is chosen as they need it throughout the game, which is a, a neat style of doing equipment. And then they choose their plan of action, how they're going to tackle this problem, this score. And it could be any number of ways. It could be basically through something like assault, where you're just going to go head on. It can be through sneaking or through... Um, manipulation of some kind or through arcane methods so that it's the players that choose hey here's how i want to tackle this problem which is telling the gm okay so they want to do like they want to tackle the problem through assault or or whatever they choose that's what i should focus this on because that's what my players want to play gotcha so the the uh heist that we ended up settling on is there was this well-to-do family that was buying up low-income properties and turning them into apartments, basically burning and turning them, gentrifying neighborhoods, kicking out the people that have been there forever, and trying to make a quick buck. Uh, and we were opposed to that. Uh, we had some connections to the city, and this was our turf. And um, so, and I'm honestly still a little confused about what we accomplished, if anything. Um, so our our goal was to basically get the deeds that they had bought, ransom them back to them so that we get money, but give them fake deeds. So when they buy back the deeds that we stole using their money, they actually have nothing and we have all the money and the properties, which we were then going to either give back to the people who got kicked out or or find some way to compensate them. So at what point during the campaign or in the session did you think, you know what, let's add in a wrinkle that this is a double heist. And instead of the mark being the family, the mark turned out to be another group of people who were scamming the family. It wasn't probably until about halfway through that I, that we talked about it. So as I said earlier, I messed up. I actually um, thought that we this was going to be a sneak type mission, that you all were going to sneak in, find the deeds, uh, try to steal them back, and then do whatever you needed to with them. That's what I had actually planned for. I came up with a list of complications, the engagement role, everything was based on that. And so when someone says, hey, let's kind of do a, let's do a, a talkie, you know, let's do a mission where we're talking a lot, we're engaging with these people, I went, okay, let's see what happens. Um, so probably halfway through, I kind of got the thought process that, you know, maybe, th- again, one of the things about the world we have to realize is that that what we're doing is not is that the scoundrels that you that the, the group is playing are not the only scoundrels out there. There are a large number of groups of scoundrels that are trying to do their own scores that are trying to take care of their own things, and sometimes those paths cross. And I forgot there was a role that there was a failure on trying to see what was going on. Um, and I made up my mind right then. I, th- I think it was when um, the character known as Preacher was was doing something and failed to understand or, or to look at the uh, the NPC uh, in that light. And I went, okay, well, the, now they're not actually a part of the family. Now they're another group of scoundrels. And so we kind of headed off the going that way instead. Um, but it's just, to me, it's it's a symptom of the world that you live in, that you can't trust what you see and you can't trust what's going on. Um, I thought it worked out well. 
Yeah, again, it did work out well, but I think just as a player, I also was a little bit confused about what our original plan was and then how quickly, which again, that's part of the fun is the, the, the plan changed, but I feel like the plan didn't change through intent of the players. It it changed more from we we were confused as players and we were just, you know, again, we're just trying to have, have fun, which we did. So you did a great job running the game. Don't, don't, don't think I'm not saying that, but I do think there was some confusion about what we were trying to do and then what we actually end up accomplishing. Um, so there was a, uh, a youngish man and a youngish woman, you know, 20, 30 years old. They were uh, the grandchildren, we thought, of this well-to-do family. And they had basically scammed their way into this house, this old manor house, and had assumed the roles of granddaughter and grandson and were using, spending money and influence that didn't belong to them. So we thought we were scamming the family. We, in fact, were edging in on their territory. And at some point during the heist, again, some of us thought we were still looking for the deeds. Uh, And then we separated the male and female out. Uh, We murdered the male. And we threatened physical harm on the female. And we essentially, the ending was they agreed not to murder us and give us the deeds that they had scammed illegally anyway. So what am I, what am I missing there? I'm, again, I'm still a little confused myself. No, I, I think, so I think what, what, that's exactly what had happened is um, when we talking, when, when the players started talking about, instead of just stealing deeds, Hey, we're going to, we're going to set this up to do a bunch of different things. It kind of breaks, it, it breaks the monotony, uh, breaks the thought process of this is a score. This is, we're just doing what we get here and then we're moving on. So I was trying to declutter it a little bit. So we didn't have the time of leaving and coming back and having to, having to sell back to their own devices, that kind of stuff. So I was trying to just make it not so complicated and in doing so, yeah, we'll see. So again, it's one of those things that, yeah, at one point in time um, in the story that, you know, something changed and I decided to change what we're looking at in order to push us for time as well. Cause we're, again, we're, we're also going up against a time crunch. Sure. So I think quite honestly in playing most of the time when we're, this is such a different type of game. It takes playing three or four times to with the group to get a feel what the group wants to do and how complicated they want to make things. Cause you can make these as complicated as possible or as simple as possible. Right. So in my mind, um, actually no one died that there was some other people in the room that actually got the guy, young man out. Uh, okay. And so if we were playing a campaign, those two would definitely show up to you all again, uh, probably multiple, multiple times and may even be, Basically, the the foils at this point in time foiling what right. you're trying to do until you take care of them permanently. Right. So, and, and totally fair, we we did not see the body. What what the camera saw was this person unconscious in a pool of their own blood in a room on fire with a ghost about to come take vengeance on them. Right. That's what we saw. We don't. Right. We didn't actually see what happened after that. And and there's a lot of that in this game for me. There's a lot of off screen things that can happen, and it's up to the GM to keep them interesting and make and and make consequences come back. So consequences is a big is a big style in this game is is a big um, subject matter in this game is that the consequences of your actions I'm going to try to use against you in in a good storytelling way. And so if you harm you know cause violence to someone with without really having to I'm probably as a GM going to remind you of that going down the road going to make your lives a little worse than than what they could be 
because that's again in most high stories murder is not a thing that happens a lot it's a it's a thing that happens when it absolutely needs to but it also stops characters from from turning into uh, you know a hammer in every situation where everyone's right. a nail is you don't want that to happen in your story you want your story to be you want your city to be alive you don't want there to be a trail of, of bodies every time that you that you believe somewhere it also helps the gm to make hooks for later on so again if this is a campaign those two would absolutely come back to either haunt if they were dead or or haunt you alive uh, if they're alive and make your lives worse and I, I think that fits the heist motif and, you know, the, the themes of those types of games. If you don't see it on camera, then you don't know for sure. And that's why it makes sense when they would have come back in a future campaign. Like, you know, we we thought that person was dead, but we didn't know. We assumed and we know what assuming does. Uh, and that, again, gives them good uh, role play hooks and, you know, vengeance. And uh, my, my first thought is they come back, but they want us to help them with a job. So like not only do they come back and you're like, oh my God, I thought you were dead and your face is horribly burned, but now you're trying to hire us because you need us, which is interesting, but I'm sure they're going to double cross us. So we got to, not only are we going to do this job, we got to, we got to work against you too, which adds those layer of complexities that I enjoyed in these types of games. Uh, but again, I thought you handled it very well in, in the moment, everything seemed to make sense. When he got to the end, we felt like we had a victory. But it's just one of those things that if I sit back and try to go from point A to point Z, there's a few points that get a little fuzzy in the middle. I'm like, okay, well, that again, it's a it's a one shot of a game none of us knew how to play. So totally cool. Uh, but if anything, I find it humorous just the way that that worked out. I also think that was a, a symptom of us trying to deal with a real world problem that it's not easy to solve and try to make it solvable by a heist in two hours because you can't just solve that, uh, you know we probably should have maybe went with something a little bit more direct, like stealing the deeds. I think, I think we comp- we made it our own problems. Honestly, we made our bed and we slept in it. Uh, so looking back at the game again, there were choices that were made that were beyond your control, but is there anything that from the mechanic standpoint, looking back on it, you would have done differently that we can maybe point to in the video, like, you know, halfway through this role was made or this decision. Is there anything that stands out to you as, I could have done that, not better, but differently. Yeah, so I, I think for um, for me, again, another part of this, another part of this game is clocks, and a clock is a physical manifestation of a time period that gets filled in, and and as a result of complications or um, people's actions, when the clock gets filled in, basically a, a pie graph of some kind, when it gets filled in with all the pieces, whatever you've assigned it, certain things happen. And so as a GM, you put those clocks in, you say, if the guards are going to come, hey, if, if you keep rolls in fours and fives, I'm going to keep ticking this clock up. When it's done, there's going to be guards coming. I think I, I wish that I had put one of those in early to help understand what we were trying to do a little bit with basically show off the clock mechanism, the mechanics of a clock. Mm-hmm. Um, there is also a time when I stated that there were two people's henchmen where you heard their their footsteps, and I kind of let that drop because our, the focus went back from another location. Um, again, in a one-shot, there is... I, I needed to be more particular with what my players were looking for out of the game uh, and simplify it a little bit and just what what are they looking at in my head 
most of the time with a one shot is this is going to be the only time the person plays it, at least for a long time, you know, maybe right. ever. So I want them to get out of the game what they want, whatever their character wants. And so sometimes you bring up complications and the, and the person just is not, doesn't seem interested in engaging with those. And so I think there were, there were times in that where I was testing out different things of, Hey, do you all want to engage this? No, it doesn't seem like you want to engage. So then we move on to other things. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, I think that's also a case where as a group plays and gets to understand the game a little better, the GM gets to understand their players a little better and what they're interested in and what they're not interested in. And I think that's just good GMing overall, this game or any other. If you're, if you're, you're constantly as a GM throwing out plot hooks and, you know, role play opportunities, adventure opportunities. And if they, the players are interested, then you need to follow up on those. And if they're not, it's okay to let things die. You know, you're no offense, but you're not recreating Lord of the Rings. Maybe, maybe you are. I'm not when I'm running games. So if I have this whole subplot going about there might be a war, uh, you know, coming to these two nations and my characters just don't seem to care. I guess the peace talks worked out. You know yeah. what? Or, or it was a short war. It was just a couple of days. And everybody's, everybody's over it now because it's just it's. Life's too short to worry about the things they don't care about. Keep the action on what they do care about. You can always make it into a plot point later because they didn't care about the war, but then that becomes a smaller adventure in set in, you know, this is a refugee we have to rescue, or this is treasure that was lost in a battle, and now we can, you know, we can try to salvage it type of a thing. But if they don't care about something, just don't worry about it. Yeah, absolutely. Again, especially for a one-shot. You <laughs> definitely don't have time in a one-shot to worry about Right. And, and I think, again, as the GM, as we're being reactive to things, again, we have to keep in mind that you all are competent. So if someone fails, there was a, a failed role on an arcane check uh, where, there, where one of our players was trying to talk to Ghost, and they failed it. And I had to try to figure out quickly, how does, how does someone who does this all the time fail this role? Because they shouldn't. They should succeed. And I had to think, oh... Maybe there's an item that is blocking them. And later on, we that kind of came up that probably something couldn't have happened later on because of that same item, but I had completely forgotten about the item before. So I was like, yeah, it works. Move on. Um, yeah. So it's just one of those things that, again, you're, the, the GM has to give the players rope in order to, to make mistakes and do things and and have a good time and the players have to at the same point in time give the gm some rope and say it, it's a story you're building together and so as long as we're all getting to a story at the end it's like all right cool should it have been simpler yeah probably but at the same point in time the players seem energetic here hey here's what we want to try to do and again when you're also dealing with the one shot in two hours you're trying to get something done quick and fast um and it that is to me the fun of of running different one shots as we run these, I learn different things. And so next time I would have probably said, let's simplify this. Let's just do this instead. But trying to understand what it's going to have time for is something that I'm still learning. No, and again, and, and I seriously, I mean this bottom of my heart, the game was a ton of fun. So by, by the RPG Academy standards, <laughs> you did it right. Uh, and this is hindsight. This is Michael a week later. Uh, I just think simplifying it would have been better yeah. I, I you know i think the problem is that we try to solve a real world problem fake so i just this is just again two weeks behind just say probably what we should have done is say that they didn't actually buy the properties yet yeah they were trying to and then our job was to stop them from being able to buy them absolutely that would have been a very straightforward and direct you know we could make their money disappear so they don't have the funds 
uh, you know, impersonate them and piss off the people they're supposed to buy the properties from, that we could have still solved that problem. But by by jumping into it after they've already bought the properties, that's a lengthy process to fix that. And I just I don't think we had any chance of making a, a, a truly coherent and satisfying. We had a so satisfying conclusion. It wasn't coherent to the story we started from. Right. And, and I also think probably what should have happened is I should have directed, we should have talked about that during the session zero. Uh, mm-hmm. This is a great time to have talked about, okay, so you want to do a heist. That's great. What is your plan? And that's the question I did not ask that I should have asked is, what is your plan? Because I totally planned for you all to do something completely different. And when that didn't happen, then basically the notes get shoved off the table and it's like, well, let's see where this goes. So again, that's a learning experience for me is to ask ahead of time, what is your plan going to be? Okay, now I understand it. Now let's make it happen. So right. that that is definitely something that as you're going through this uh, as a GM, it's what is your plan? Keep it simple. Keep it moving. Let's see what happens. And again, I think that's just good GMing advice overall, even if you're not playing a heist. Um, anytime there's confusion or the possibility of confusion, I think it's good to ask the player, what is your intent here? Yeah. You know, you, you said you want to have a role play scene between you and the shopkeeper. Okay. What is the intent? Is it this is just you want to have some fun with the shopkeeper? Are you looking to find out if there are secret connections in the city? Are you wanting to murder them when everyone else is out? Like, what are you trying to do so that I, as the GM, can effectively handle the other side of this conversation? And, you know, I can lay hints about things if I want there to be or, you know, whatever the case may be. So I think it's always a good idea to just make sure everyone understands what everyone's trying to do. They may not accomplish it. Failure is still part of the game and fun part of the game. But if I think you failed because I thought you were trying to do something you weren't trying to do, then that's not really as fun. Yeah. So it's something we've definitely, like I've definitely taken to other games is now when we have another game in our campaign at the end of the campaign, I, as a player will tell my GM, here's my thought. Here's my character's thought at the end of this game and what they're going to try to accomplish next time. Maybe they can, maybe they can't do with that, whatever you will. But I'm going, my character's going into the mindset here. So it's made me really talk with my GM more and kind of work collaboratively. Whereas a lot of times uh, people have this, it's the GM and then versus the players. In Blades, it really doesn't feel like that. The, the, the GM is, is telling you what goes on because of your actions and because of your consequences, not setting a bunch of stuff ahead of time. Do you have to overcome and, and do the us versus us versus them uh, kind of kind of aspect? You don't get that from this. At least I don't, at least. Very, very cool. Well, Nathan, thank you so much for joining me and, and kind of breaking down the game and then uh, talking a little bit about the game we played. So again, a reminder, check the show notes. There's a link to Saverick's YouTube channel. You can go watch... Uh, they do a lot of different stuff. This is the only thing that I was, I've participated in, but I'll link to that video specifically. Uh, so any final words about blades in the dark or anything in particular before we sign off? Nope. Just uh, check it out again. Always. It's always cool to check out another type of system because you never know what you could add into whatever you're playing now. You know, it doesn't mean that you have to run some big long campaign. You can do a one shot. You could do a, a break everything up and do a two or three shot just to learn mechanics and and always. I am now open my eyes to the other systems that are out there. Even if I may not play them, I still want to read them. I still want to take in their mechanics and what they have going on so that I can add it into what I'm doing. Uh, it, it always helps to to kind of keep things fresh and keep things moving. A hundred percent. I I think one of the biggest reasons I've I'm a better 
GM today than I was five years ago is because I play so many other games in the in the meantime and I've stolen pieces and parts from them. And so when I run D&D now, it, it looks very weird because I have all these different elements, but I think it's a lot better. So absolutely, I think playing and running in other systems is beneficial, even if D&D is the game you love, like, like me, and that's the game you're going to play most of the time. Uh, stealing pieces and parts from other games is certainly very helpful. And of course, you know, our motto is that no matter what game you play, the system or edition, what rules you use, don't use or misuse, as long as you're having a good time, you're doing it right. So Nathan, thank you once again. Check out the show notes to go watch Nathan run a game where I got to have a truffle pig, which completely stole the show. It was awesome. And until next time, just remember, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast. We do this show out of love for the hobby and the desire to be ambassadors, welcoming more people into this community. All of our website content will always be free to use and utilize. But there are expenses related to the show. And if you enjoy what we do here, then please consider supporting us in some way. You can do so as simply as rating or reviewing us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. If you're going to purchase anything through Amazon or DriveThruRPG, consider using our affiliate links first, and then we'll get a small percentage sent back to us. You can do a single direct donation through PayPal using the paypal.me slash the RPG Academy. Or consider joining our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash the RPG Academy. And for a donation as low as $1 a month, you'll get access to lots of extra goodies, including bonus minisodes, invites to monthly one-shot games, one-sheet adventures, and more. Please consider following us on Twitter and Facebook, or join our Discord, where we like to try to keep the conversation going with our fans as best we can, and are always looking to talk and chat more. Or do none of that. Just continue to listen and enjoy our show. Because honestly, that's enough. Thanks. And remember, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. We'll see you next time. music used for our intro and outro is Fly a Kite by Spectacular Sound Productions, used under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike License.